Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to part seven of Darker Demons. As all of you who have been listening know, the book is available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and other online booksellers, as is my first novel, Ocean's Ending. And hopefully within a few months, the sequel to Ocean's Ending will also be available. But I do not have a title yet, so maybe if you have a good title, you could go to OceansEnding.com and send it to me. And if I pick your title, you get a free copy of the book. And now, part seven of Darker Demons. And we left Alexandra, well, we didn't know where Alexandra was when we left. And Tom is home in his apartment, and he's getting ready to go out to dinner. Cleaning off the dirt of the hellishly hot day and bandaging his arm, Tom dresses for dinner out, not knowing what else to do. Opening the door leading to the courtyard in front of the building, he discovers Alexandra. His joy at seeing her is tempered by the sight of her disheveled appearance. She is sitting at one of the tables, head resting in hands. Alex, what happened? You look terrible. She doesn't answer him. She just sits, staring straight ahead. Picking her up as he would a child and carrying her into the apartment, he places her gently on the bed. Undressing her, he examines her body for injuries. She appears unhurt. There are no bruises, no discolorations. Gently running his hands all over, he feels nothing broken. You are too beautiful to be real, he thinks. Kissing her neck while his fingers move between her legs, he hears her moan, jolting him back to reality. What's wrong with me? I can't take advantage of her like this, he says out loud. I'm running a nice warm bath for you, he tells Alexandra. Everything's going to be fine. I'll take care of you. Finally, she turns to him, acknowledging his presence. She places her hand on his cheek. So good. You are so good to me, she says. Tom adds some of her jasmine bath oil to the tub, hoping Alexandra will find it soothing. Picking her up again, he carries her into the bathroom. I don't want to try to lower you in, he says. I'm afraid I might drop you. It's all right. You can put me down. I'm starting to get my strength back, she tells him. He sets her down. Her arms reach up to him. She presses her naked body against him, urging him to finish what he started. Bending down, he kisses her warm, welcoming mouth. Feeling himself sinking into her, he pulls back. Not now, not like this, he tells her. Take your bath. I'll go get us something to eat, he says, rushing out of the room before he can change his mind. Lowering herself into the waiting water, Alexandra inhales the jasmine and finally begins to unwind. She picks up the soap and begins lathering herself with slow, soothing strokes. Eyes closed, she sees Jake's face. She is lost in the fantasy when Tom returns and knocks on the door. Come in and join me, she says dreamily. Tom opens the door as she opens her eyes and comes back to reality. Embarrassed by her thoughts, she asks Tom to give her some privacy. He sets up their dinner while Alexandra wraps herself in his robe, so large she feels like a tiny child floating inside of it. Sitting down opposite him, she is suddenly famished. This smells wonderful. Crawfish etouffee is one of my favorites, she tells Tom, breaking off a piece of the crusty bread and dipping it in the rich sauce. 
I got us some beer, too, he tells her, opening a couple of icy cold abitas. Do you think you can tell me what happened to you, he asks. Just let me relax. I'll tell you everything I remember in a bit, although it isn't much. The two of them eat dinner in silence. Alexandra is still lost in her thoughts of Jake, not really able to understand how she can still have feelings for him. Tom is waiting patiently for her to open up and tell him what happened. Finally unable to take the silence any longer, Tom snaps. Alexandra, please, can you just say something? Shaken out of her reverie, she looks across the table at him. I'm sorry, what, what is it you want me to say? Throwing down his napkin and pushing back his chair, Tom gets up and slams out of the room. Unable or unwilling to go after him, wearing only a bathrobe, Alexandra stays where she is and finishes her meal. An unfamiliar feeling of rage is coursing through Tom's body as he explodes through the door of his apartment. Getting into his car, he heads for St. Louis Cemetery. Alexander may have thought that woman was crazy, but I need to find out for myself, he thinks. Tom parks the car on Dauphine Street. He is tempted by the noise of the revelers on Bourbon Street, but his destination is in the opposite direction. He turns away and heads down St. Louis Street. As he walks, the sultry air causes a heavy feeling in his chest. He thinks, I feel like I'm trying to breathe underwater. Sounds are muffled. Buildings washed in watercolor gray fade in and out of his sight. He has no company as he approaches Basin Street and turns toward, the, turns toward the cemetery. There is a locked gate at the entrance, but he easily locates a fence he is able to climb over. Removing a map from his pocket, he realizes he doesn't need it. He wends his way through the maze of crypts, knowing where to go without understanding how. How is it I know exactly where I'm going when I've never been here before, he muses. Arriving at the crypt, allegedly containing the body of Marie Laveau, he searches for the strange woman from Café du Monde. He doesn't see her anywhere, but when he turns around, she is standing beside it. You startled me, he tells her. You need to pay attention, boy. You've got to be careful. New Orleans can be a dangerous place if you ain't, she scolds him. I'll remember that, he tells her. You best take me seriously. That woman you're in love with is in danger, and you got to protect her. Can't do that if you ain't paying attention. Tom is feeling the stirrings of his previous anger when he asks, What do you know about her? What kind of danger is she in? Now you just settle down, and I tell you, your lady, she don't understand who she is. She thinks this here lady whose name is on the grave, this Marie Laveau, is her great-great-great-great-grandmother. She's wrong. Marie is her mother, and her name ain't Marie. It's Lorelei. Alexandra's mama only just died 32 years ago. There's no body in this grave. The woman proclaims, extending her arm and pointing to the crypt with a flourish. Barely containing his fury, he says, Alexandra was right. You're just some crazy woman out to flee steel. He turns around to leave, but she grabs his arm. Now you listen to me, boy. I ain't crazy. I'm telling you the honest truth. You find a man named Lucien de la Terre, and you ask him about your lady. Tom wanders back to the car, wondering what he will tell Alexandra tomorrow. She wakes up briefly when he returns. He doesn't want to disturb her any further. He decides to sleep on the couch, and that is how they spend the remainder of the night.
The morning after Detective Thibodeau's visit, Jake is packed and ready to remove his belongings from the apartment he and Caitlin had occasionally shared and return them to his house on Royale Street. There is still one loose end he needs to tie up. Heading for the hospital, he feels a faint memory of desire for the woman he is about to dispatch. He remembers her as a skilled partner, easily manipulated, at least in the beginning. She had been more than willing to engage in some truly depraved acts. He had not anticipated the affair with Caitlin. Initially, he had only wanted to meet Alexandra. Rumors in New Orleans were rampant that Lucienne de la Terre's daughter had finally reached sexual maturity. His curiosity about the gorgeous Alexandra was irresistible. Quickly discovering the rumors were true, Jack, Jake had enthusiastically seduced her. He hadn't expected the involvement to last. They never did. But inexplicably, one month became two, then six, and still they were together. Jake's relationship with Caitlin, on the other hand, was only an entertaining diversion, at least for him. She had wanted him from their first contact. He found her attractive and responded by initiating the affair. Alexandra never suspected her boyfriend and best friend were feeding her a constant stream of lies. Gradually over the course of their relationship, Caitlin's personality had changed. Her sexual it became so twisted, even Jake was disturbed by them. There was a cruel edge to everything she did. He was unable to pinpoint the exact moment he realized she had become a different person. He felt it began shortly after an incident which occurred outside her office one afternoon. As she told it, she was walking down the steps when a huge white cat planted itself in her path. She had pride to walk around it, but the key creature kept darting from side to side, preventing her escape. Finally, it reached up and clawed her leg, leaving a nasty scratch. After that, it had bounded down the steps and disappeared. Jake wondered if it had infected her with some virus which altered her behavior. It wasn't long after that she approached him with the plan. Suggesting they would be better off with the judge no longer in the picture, she explained her idea. She would shoot her husband and make it look as if Alexandra had committed the crime. I'll tell the police she and the judge were having an affair, but he refused to divorce me, so she murdered him, she said. Then once the judge was dead, the two of them would take the money and move far away from New Orleans. He asked what they would do about Alexandra. Kill her, of course, she answered, laughing. We'll make it look like a suicide. Hoping to buy some time, Jake presented her with an alternative scenario. He suggested they kidnap Alexandra and pump her full of drugs. Convince her she's losing her mind, he told her. We can use the brainwave-altering chip I invented to control her visions. Then we tell the police she threatened to kill herself so they won't be looking for her, at least they won't be looking for a live Alexandra. When she can't tell what's real and what isn't, you call the police and say she's still alive and she's coming after you and she has a gun. We'll stage it to look as if you shot her in self-defense. He finally convinced her it was the smartest way to handle it. 
and Caitlin had carried out her part of the plan. Framing Caitlin for the murder had been his plan all along. He enters her room unseen and leans over her. He can't sense any spirit in the once vibrant body. Placing his mouth over hers, he sucks out what little life remains. Sorry, darling, but I'm sure you understand. It's nothing personal. As the monitor begins to screech, indicating Caitlin's death, Jake disappears. Awakening to an empty apartment, Alexandra finds a note on the pillow next to her head. Tom has gone to get them both some coffee and pick up a copy of the Times Picayune. He heads to the bathroom to get dressed. Her mind is amazed she is having trouble navigating. Scenes of a past life that seem to belong to someone else interfere with the present reality. Remembering her visit with Gregory, she wonders what he meant by, you are the key. She knows of no connection between them, yet he claimed to know both of her parents. She hears Tom return and throws on the robe to go out and greet him. He is beginning to look like she feels. Huge circles surround his eyes. His usually pale skin is almost ashen. Even his body looks different, smaller and less sturdy. Hey, good morning. You look terrible. Are you doing all right, she asks. Under the circumstances, yes, I am doing all right. How are you, he answers, not smiling. Confused and tired. He hands her a coffee and sits down at the small antique table. Are you ready to tell me what happened yesterday, he asks. Sitting down opposite him, she says, I will tell you what I remember. Some of it is pretty hard to believe. Alexandra, after the week I have had, I will believe almost anything, he says. And I think that's a good place to stop. And I hope you'll tune in again next week for the next episode Part 8 of Dork and Demons, and until then, have a good week.